0: Welcome to a brand new episode of the SchmearCast. I'm your host, Gabriel Freiberg. This is your one-stop shop for everything you need to know film and TV related, helping you know what's important right now. Great show coming your way, talking about so many different topics, honestly. Starting off with Teddy Kim to discuss the finale of True Detective Night Country. We had a lot of fun talking about it. That's all I'll say. We get into the specifics, we get granular, but I will just say, wow, I got a kick out of that conversation. And honestly, I got more of a kick out of discussing this show with all of you listeners and with Teddy than I did from watching it. We get into all that in that conversation. After that, Elvira Audi stops by. She is a Peter Stark producing master's student and a fabulous Substack writer in her own right. I brought her on as the resident French critic for a dispatch, well, she's in LA, but it's a dispatch from France talking about the lovely, sumptuous, new romantic drama, romantic cooking movie. Let's call it a romantic cooking film, The Taste of Things, which came out on Valentine's Day last week starring Benoit Magimel and Juliette Binoche. It was France's pick for Best International Feature, but it did not get nominated. And another huge film from France didn't get nominated in that category either. A little bit of controversy there. We get into all of that. And then we discuss the new Apple TV show, The New Look. This is also set in France. This is also period and historical. It's the new series on Apple TV starring Ben Mendelsohn as Christian Dior and Juliette Binoche here again as Coco Chanel set in the world of haute couture in the first half of the 20th century. Really excited for this one. We get into the first few episodes. You'll find out if we liked it or not. So that's what I got for you today. But first, let's get into some Hollywood talk. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. You thought it was Hollywood talk? Psych! It is actually international talk. Let's even call it Berlin talk. I'm here at Berlinale. I am weary and exhausted. I am seeing about three or four movies a day. Some of these films are excellent. Some are not. And honestly, that roller coaster of variety is exciting in its own right. I'm not gonna get into all the films today. I'm gonna save that for its own show as I rank them. I will just say, it's really been a blast. So many unique stories from all around the world. So many new faces and actors I've never seen before. The quality level, it tends to differ. This is one of the first festivals of the year. Of course, Sundance was prior, but Really, these films have not yet been critically appraised or judged. They're coming fresh out of the gates, and I'm seeing them first. And not all of them are great. But like I said, that's fun. That's diverse. Berlin itself is massive. I am running myself ragged going from screening to screening. It's very exciting, though, coming out of these press screenings, just hearing so many different languages being spoken The whole world seems to be descending on the city in a celebration of film, and it's quite inspiring. This particular Berlinale is fraught with political strife in fascinating ways. The main jury is led by Lupita Nyong'o, and they're really presiding over, like I said, one of the most politically active and charged Berlinales in quite some time. Now, why is that? One of the major political parties in Germany is called AFD, and they are a right-wing extremist political party. Now, I don't need to get into on this pod why right-wing extremism is more than a tad concerning when it comes to Germany. You know, this party is not dissimilar from the Republican Party in the U.S. right now not dissimilar from Marine Le Pen's RN National Rally Party in France, and not dissimilar from a right-wing shift in many European countries right now. But nevertheless, like I said, not so cool, pretty verboten in Germany. As democratically elected officials, though, they were invited and given around five to 10 invitations to Berlinale, which is the policy of the festival. This was met with major, major debate and upset as this festival, which is supposed to be a celebration of diversity and an international spirit and an artistic mutual feeling, you know, the core, ethics and ethos of Berlinale and what this film festival is supposed to represent stands in contrast to the AFD and what they stand for, xenophobia, transphobia, Islamophobia. And so there was an uproar about these invitations sent, and there continues to be an uproar. The Berlinale festival directors had to rescind these invitations which I don't think is such a great idea. Now, I certainly am not German. I'm not on the ground reporting on this or understanding this, but my impression is uh, having seen the extremist wing of my own country gain power, by rescinding these invitations, they are giving fuel to the fire of this right-wing AFD party. Now AFD can go back to their home states and say, look what this artistic, liberal, leftist film festival did to us. See how they don't want us here. And that is just fodder for their voters. This is just my opinion. I have immense respect for the many artistically minded, creative, diverse signees of the letter that went to the Berlinale asking for the rescinding of the invitations. But I think it's not such a great look long-term. Nevertheless, it happened. The invitations were rescinded. The AFD is not here. Sure, good aspects of that. Just something that was a little funky and a little weird at this festival. That uproar has seemed to have died down as the festival started, as the films have started to show. And... After some fiery debate on the topic between that jury led by Lupita Nyong'o, it seems that the issue has passed a little bit. But for people maybe hearing offhandedly what the hell is going on with Berlinale, that's what I can tell you. And what else I could tell you, being on the ground, the problem seems to have receded. No one's really talking about it that much, but certainly some interesting undercurrents happening here. Like I said, I will rank what I saw and write about it for the Schmear Hunter and then go through those rankings here on the SchmearCast, but I am still in the midst of viewing and writing and that will have to come later. But now let's turn our attention to the United States, back to my homeland, and let's head to one of the non-contiguous states in this beautiful country, and that is Alaska, Teddy Kim returns to the show. We're talking True Detective, Night Country. The finale, the finale, the six-episode series ended on Sunday night. We have many, many thoughts. That's coming up next. Stick around, and we'll be right back. All right, I am back for the last time Not on the podcast ever, but at least talking True Detective Season 4 with Mr. Teddy Kim. He of the first derivative, Substack, a writer, a thinker, a gentleman. Teddy, we have reached the end of True Detective Season 4 Night Country. Orange, you glad it's over?
1: I'm glad we've made it through the Night Country. We're through. We can see the daylight.
0: Before we get into the plot summary and everything, I just wanted to see if you had any big picture thoughts about this episode before we dive in.
1: Big picture? I mean, I thought it was very weird. Credit to them. I think they they wrap up, I guess, every loose thread, but in ways that I could not have imagined.
0: Yeah. Just before this was reading a bunch of interviews that Issa Lopez was giving the creator of the show, and... God, everyone is really excited, her included, especially, about the ambiguities. I mean, sure. Did you really feel like you will be thinking or questioning anything in this show in the days following, besides why you spent all this time watching it?
1: No, I think the case is closed. We can close the book on this one. I guess there, I think what Navarro's fate is a little ambiguous, but... That's something I, I particularly care about.
0: Yeah, we will give our thoughts now and then we'll get into, you know, the online reception, the critical reception, and then wrap up asking what we thought of the season and where we think, you know, True Detective might go next or if we want it to continue. But Teddy, let's start off with the episode itself. This is the finale, the sixth episode. I have a plot summary here for you if you will oblige me.
1: Take us home, Schmier.
0: Okay. Danvers and Navarro explore caves during a storm. They discover a network and secret laboratory down there that's quite built out. Clark is there, the mystery man from all season. He attacks them, but he is subdued. Clark confesses to a, quote unquote, save the world kind of plan involving DNA from a microorganism. Seems like technological utopianism got the best of him. We learn that the Salal bros murdered Annie when she was snooping. Young Pete Pryor disposes his dad and Otis Heiss' bodies with Rose Agano's help. Kind of therapeutic, if you ask me. Danvers and Navarro discuss the Wheeler-staged murder again. Again. Clark somehow leaves the station on Navarro's watch and dies on the ice. A little slip-up, no harm, no foul. Just the most important Fucking witness in the whole show. The blizzard cuts the power off. Navarro hears voices yet again and heads out on the ice. Navarro learns her indigenous name from Ghost Julia, while Danvers sees her son Holden trapped in the ice and dives in for him. Navarro snaps out of her fantasy in time to save Danvers from the frigid waters. Apres swim, warming up back at Salal Lodge and enjoying the Aurora Borealis, Danvers finds fingerprints on a hatch and a big narrative leap is leapt. This leads to the questioning of Salal's female native cleaning employees who apparently live in a janitorial sorority house together. The ladies revealed that they took basically murderous, vengeful action against the Salal scientist. Cool answer, says Navarro and Danvers. They close the case. Fast forward a few months. Navarro disappears. Silver Sky Mine is shut down. Danvers and her daughter reconcile. Peter reconciles with Kayla too. And Danvers and Navarro are revealed to be sipping cocoa together on a gorgeous lakefront. The end. Teddy, does that cover this episode?
1: It does. Yes, it does.
0: Now that we're we're done, can I ask, do you enjoy these summaries? Do they make you love the episode more? Less? How did how do you feel?
1: I feel like he- I enjoy your summaries more than the episodes, usually.
0: All right, so I I broke this up into discrete sections, and we can go through this semi-chronologically if you're ready to dive in now.
1: Yeah, let's dive in under the ice.
0: Let's start off with the Clark torture and the explanation of the Annie Kaye murder. So we get a very convenient quote here, no Wi-Fi, no radio, no way we can drive in the storm. I know you like that one.
1: Oh, yeah, I cracked up when I heard that. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so Navarro and Danvers, after apprehending Clark, they strap him into a chair and they give him some ambient Annie Cowtalk torture by having her screams play on a loop. A little ASMR. Yeah, I thought it was actually funny when they turn to each other and they say, want some coffee? And then just leave the room. <laughs> What'd you think of this torture tool for one of the potential big bads of the season?
1: I mean, I thought it was pretty messed up. I feel like at that point they don't know for sure what Clark did for all they know. Like he was actually in love with her and something happened. So it seems kind of messed up to torture him by making him relive her death over and over again.
0: Yeah. He does say four times that he did love her.
1: Yeah. And Navarro, you know, had to confirm.
0: Ernest Burkhardy, like killers of the flower moon, but I shouldn't even be saying these two together in a sentence, but sorry to Marty. Did you think that the explanation of Annie's death was satisfactory? How did you feel about it? It turning out that the Salal scientists were responsible for her murder?
1: No, not really. I mean, it felt just very out of place. Like the idea that these kind of nerdy scientists would go into a homicidal rage because she messed up their work just seems a little ridiculous to me. And the ending reminded me a bit of Wind River in terms of how the main victim you know, we get a flashback learning how they died. I won't spoil that movie, but there are some similarities to the point where it just it feels very ripped off.
0: I didn't feel it was necessarily ripped off. I do believe that they could have murdered her. I just had trouble understanding why she was down there and able to access a top secret lab so easily. And I rewound it to try and understand the rationale and hear them say it. I couldn't get a clear answer there.
1: Yeah, it just... A lot of what he says makes no sense. I mean, it's just a huge exposition dump, I feel like in, in terms of just telling us what happened. You know, I don't feel anything from learning that those scientists killed her because I don't know anything about those scientists.
0: To be honest, you don't know much about Annie Cowtalk. She had one scene.
1: Yeah. I mean, we know a little bit more about her. We know that she was like a midwife and it seems like an all around decent human being. But we literally know nothing about the scientists over the six episodes other than they died. And then at the end, we get this huge reveal that they killed her, but it doesn't go against any of our preconceptions about them. And then also just the explanation of the motive of, you know, the fact that they wanted more pollution in order to get pure DNA from the ice. It, I don't know. It just doesn't seem to make much sense.
0: Yeah, I'm not a scientist, but I was curious about that one, too.
1: We might need to go ask the the high school teacher that Danvers slept with if that checks out.
0: (laughs) Clark says something that completely doesn't make sense in this moment, too. He says that time is a flat circle, referencing Rust Cole's famous quote from season one. I had an audible, physical response to hearing this. A big ick, as the kids say. Just don't do it. Just don't say it.
1: Yeah, I mean... I feel like the show very much wants to be its own thing this season. But then when you go and make quotations like that and referencing season one, like you're asking to be judged by the same um, standards that you judge season one. And I don't know if that's an Issa Lopez thing. I would have to imagine it's probably more of an execs thing.
0: Maybe it's a note from HBO. Yeah, that's what I would say.
1: Yeah, that's that's what I would guess is that HBO wants more stronger ties to season one, but I also rolled my eyes pretty hard when I heard that.
0: All right, let's get into the next section. I'll call this Danvers and Navarro tension. So slowly, finally, the Wheeler thing, the staged murder-suicide is revealed, I guess, even though we knew what happened in this instance probably four or five episodes ago. Enough teasing I didn't need to see it again. It serves no function here. Okay, it serves the tiniest, but man, I was bummed out to see it again, though I knew it had to come. It leads to an issue where I'm going to address later, which I'll just say it now. Flashback upon flashback. In one episode, there were four or five flashbacks to different moments, different chronological moments in our character's history. It all falls under itself from the weight of that. You cannot sustain that. You can't ask viewers to plausibly be on board with these flashbacks, maybe one, maybe two, but piling them on and on, it just dilutes their significance and makes your head hurt, makes my head hurt. I don't know if you felt similarly.
1: Yeah, it just, it feels like a cheap trick, right? I mean, it's just a way of going back and literally showing us in a direct way what happened. There's no attempt to kind of tell us the same information through the present. And that's a constraint you have when you don't have multiple timelines. But if you're not going to do that, then try to deliver that information to us through the present. And
0: hopefully not through a Pete Prior discovery or phone call, because we had enough of those.
1: I don't know what's worse on the margin, another Pete Prior phone call or a flashback.
0: So Navarro has a weird moment here. She basically lets Clark go My thinking was that she was possessed because that tends to happen to her, but it's pretty unclear was my inference. Next, Danvers and Navarro have this pretty big fight that I wasn't on board with because the power's been cut. They're about to die and they want to squabble with each other. Like,
1: yeah, I mean, one, it doesn't make sense to me that they let their main suspect out of their sight. They have a lot of faith in the power of duct tape, but... To the point where they feel comfortable going to another side of the station and just having a little argument just makes no sense to me. I don't know, maybe this is nitpicking, but I find it really hard to believe that the temperature in the station would drop so quickly. You know, I was in Texas when there was a huge Arctic freeze. And yes, like my house did go down to like 50 degrees pretty quickly. But I imagine if you build a station in the Arctic, you build it with really good insulation so that even if there's no power, It doesn't go to freezing inside the building, like right away.
0: Fair enough. Here in this moment, also, it's all season. It's so clear that Navarro is clearly unwell, that maybe they should not split up whether they're in a fight and a tiff or not. But that's exactly what they do. And sure enough, this gets us to our next section. I'm calling this business on the ice. Teddy, I'm just by this point so bored of Navarro walking off in a stupor. How many times has she done this?
1: I mean, every episode.
0: I jotted a note. Walk, don't walk. I don't care.
1: She really likes her oranges. She's got to see where they're coming from.
0: Here's something I'm confused about. Maybe you could clear up or maybe you cannot. Danvers goes after Navarro here. And she sees a vision of her young son Holden trapped under the ice. So Danvers jumps in. And first of all, I was upset because this was a really nice shot, a well-directed shot. But maybe don't include this major plot point in every trailer and promotional material for the show. We saw this in everything. I think in the the trailer for the show that dropped months ago. It's one of your best, most effective shots, and you've thrown it out
1: because it was promotional material. Yeah. They've also included it in the coming up next episode promos.
0: So how did Navarro save Danvers if Navarro was in her own state
1: of delusion and fantasy? I mean, the power of friendship. She snapped out of it. Or maybe the little boy told her. The little boy got help for her mom. so Save my
0: mommy. Yeah, Navarro has a vision of her own, and we'll get to that a little later. Let's check in on a couple supporting characters, Pete, young Pete Pryor, and Rose Agano. So Pete has a kiss with his wife, Kayla, and she says, stay safe. I thought he was going to die because that's what people that die usually get told to them before they die.
1: Did that scene make sense to you? I thought it was like the final note of a completely nonsensical relationship. Yeah, it's consistent. But I don't understand why him dropping off, I forgot her name, Danvers' daughter. Yeah, Leah. Yeah, why Kayla would come out and be like, is something wrong? She immediately thinks it's an emergency. But what would give her that impression? I don't
0: know. Well, anyways, Pete was recommended by Navarro to go to Rosagno. To help with disposing these bodies of Otis Heiss and his father. Rose is home because she always is doing a little rifle maintenance. And yeah, they dispose the bodies together. In a scene that I actually liked, there's a little bit of humor here. Pete feels this obligation to honor his dad by pushing him underwater and burying him in the ocean. And Rose has a funny line here saying, do you really want to see me cut air out of his lungs? And Pete just turns around bashfully. That was funny. They had good little chemistry. I wish these two had more
1: interactions, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I think they're two of the better actors on the show too. So it's good to see them in scenes together.
0: But for such a blizzard that was apparently going on, this scene was remarkably mild for this little nighttime activity of burying a father.
1: Yeah, you know, it it probably died down and knew what they had to do. So it's a supernatural storm, Shmir. Yeah.
0: There's another great filmmaking shot here of Pete dragging his dad across the ice in a wide shot. And I don't know, just made me think like, I wish that there were maybe a few more restrained artistic cinematic moments because kind of lost track of those as the season
1: went on. The cinematic movements are like very tame in the season. Did you notice when... Danvers is ripping out, I don't know, the DVD player in the station. It goes from a steady cam to like shaky for like 10 seconds while she's doing that. You know, I, I thought it was kind of notable because I don't, I don't think they play around that much with camera technique. I don't know if it is it worked well, but they tried to switch it up a little bit there.
0: All right, let's move on. I call this next section warming up at Salal. Navarro has pulled Danvers out of the ice. We hear a terrible, just god-awful Slowed down acoustic twist and shout. Least valuable player of the season. I'm not going to name names because that's mean, but it's got to be the music supervisor. I mean, yikes. Who approved these songs? At 20 minutes left, I'm thinking, (laughs) where are the twists? Where's the shout? Where are the explosive moments? They have not come up yet. Danvers and Navarro have a moment that's kind of a callback to season one of, you know, the way Rust and Marty look up at the sky Here, they're staring up at the northern lights.
1: And not just their situation, but also what they talk about, right? Like, at the end of season one, in that conversation, Russ is also talking about his dead daughter. And I thought that there was a clear parallel to this conversation.
0: And a hatch gets mentioned somehow in conversations. So this gives them a eureka moment to check the hatch at the station. This leads to my biggest issue with the episode, which is this detective jump to conclusion, based on, I guess, the prints on the hatch. We'll get to that. But it segues into our next section called Codename
1: the Cleaners. Oh, God. That's the spinoff show <laughs>
0: with Cedric the Entertainer. Massive logical jumps to make this deduction that the employees and the cleaning staff of Salal were responsible for something here. Did you agree with that?
1: Yeah. Just, I mean, online, people were noticing how suspicious the fingerless lady appeared and how she appears in the background of a couple scenes, like at the laundromat. So, I mean, it was in there, but it was in there in like an Easter egg sort of way, not in the, this is a reasonable conclusion to the investigation.
0: I don't mind the explanation. I do mind the deduction. I think the show knows it's a stretch too, because they need to literally flash on the screen the evidence the character etc to make sure you understand it's the cleaning ladies
1: ding dong yeah they're spoon feeding us
0: but they need to because they need to spoon feed it because it isn't very clear in my opinion
1: i mean i think it's also like they've seen that print before i think right without the fingers i can't remember maybe like on the clothes or something like that and yeah it's really not well done but I think the way I would have preferred it is for them to see the print and then not give us that insert shot and then next scene or whatever, go to that house so that we can put it together in our own minds, you know?
0: I think that's better. So they arrive at the house of the semi-fingerless girl and protect her or friend.
1: Yeah, the matriarchy of justice.
0: So here it's very convenient that, that Navarro learned her indigenous name in her vision quest. The Name is Sakanakak.
1: I don't think that's the name. <laughs> is that not? I it was like that's how they spell it. I thought it was like Sikanachak or some way like that. I'm sorry. I mean, that sounds like a place of the Hamptons, man.
0: Oh, Jesus. I'm sorry. We'll figure out what the. This is how it's spelled. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, you, you need to make an apology on the next episode.
0: No, I'm just going to take this
1: back. You need to repeat the name 10 times.
0: <laughs> what was the name? <laughs> Say it to
1: me. I heard. And I may be butchering this. Sikanachiak Sikanachiak,
0: all right. Here it becomes very clever and convenient and fabulous that Navarro has, in her vision quest, received her indigenous name, which I think is Yeah, I th-
1: <laughs> Teddy. I think that's an improvement. <laughs> Let's go with that.
0: Teddy, thank God she found that out because look at that. It comes in handy majorly in this scene. Tell me what you thought of this scene. It is high comedy.
1: I mean, it's so weird. It comes out of nowhere. I had the most bizarre thought. And I think in this show, it just comes out of nowhere to have this kind of conspiracy of janitorial matriarchs who are running things in the background.
0: So just remind listeners what takes place in this scene and in the flashback they describe.
1: Yeah, so basically Navarro and Danvers come in, they start questioning the two, I don't know, Crabbery employees. And as one of them is kind of recounting what happened actually to the scientists, you have a steady stream of Native women just entering the building and then kind of standing up behind them so that by the end, you have a tableau of the Native women who were all in on this together. And I think there's a kind of threat of, what are you gonna do about it? It took me out of the scene, because I'm like, where are these people coming from? How do they know to arrive here at the same time during a snowstorm? Or maybe after the snowstorm, I don't know. But it's presumably like, Danvers and tomorrow didn't call ahead. So do they all live here? Like, I, I don't get it. It was
0: very Avengers. It had me kind of laughing. Like I said, I don't hate the explanation that it was this conspiracy, this staff. I think there is some power behind it. But how the scene was staged, like you said, with these ladies just (laughs) randomly entering the frame, I I couldn't help but laugh a little bit. And then we get to the explanation of what they did. So we flash back to the Salal station where the janitors of justice, let's call them, go absolutely ham- on the station to like some punk music's basically playing. And they come in, guns and knives ablazing. blazing I actually liked the scene because it was just so ridiculous. I was cracking up. I don't think that's the purpose. I think everything in this show is supposed to be serious. Maybe not the supernatural, but like, that's not the tone of the show, but I was enjoying it just for the absurdity of the scene. Yeah. I wrote in my notes, just in all caps, the cleaners.
1: I would have liked, like, War Machine by ACDC or something playing. Like, it felt that ridiculous to me where you have these... I mean, they have some, like, serious guns, too. But they... The way they storm the station, it just... I, I don't know. I guess we have our explanation.
0: So they take the scientists out on the ice. They make them strip. They fold their clothes because they're cleaners. They're good at folding clothes. And then my understanding is that they sent them out to see the spirit of Annie Kay. Who is taking up whatever form of manifestation we don't know, and it's never revealed. I though, you know, hearing about how influenced this was by John Carpenter's The Thing, I wanted to see Annie K. the Sea Monster all season. I thought the K in Annie K. was for Kraken. I don't know. Maybe that's just me.
1: I mean, it's a little weird. We don't. It's not really fully explained, right? Where Annie K. seems to be like, like you said, kind of a manifestation of a more primordial being that's haunted Ennis and killed naughty people from the beginning of time. It's just unclear if that happens, right? I guess guess that's the ambiguity that they're going for, is does this native myth actually exist or not?
0: Let's get to the epilogue, which I actually kind of liked, honestly. We cut to May and Danvers being interviewed by some cops because of the strangeness of the investigation that took place a few
1: months ago. And that whole scene is also just a ripoff from season one, the way it's shot and the room and the color grading of it.
0: It was. And, you know, like I said in the summary, pretty happy endings for most characters. The detectives are especially interested in the whereabouts of Angeline Navarro. Now, before it's revealed in the last shot, where did you hope Navarro was in the world? Out of my life. I
1: don't know. Somewhere warm, hopefully for her sake. I had Hawaii in mind. Yeah, Hawaii, somewhere outside of the continental U.S. But I I mean, I don't don't understand. Like, I guess this is supposed to be ambiguous too, right? Like, What's your interpretation of the ending?
0: Navarro was kind of ghostly in that last shot. It's totally possible she is dead or gone or she killed herself. I don't know. I also don't care that much to try and suss it out.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's also kind of very weird if the implication is that she did die. I feel like the show had kind of like irresponsible messaging in terms of like, it seems very okay with, it's like, hey, if you have serious mental illness and you want to join the dead, like it's okay for you to do that. Kind of a romanticizing. Yeah, kind of romanticizing it, which I, I thought it was very weird. And, you know, art doesn't need to be like a, a public health PSA. But for the kind of show that has, have you seen that like message thing at the end of every episode where it's like, you can call this number for I don't know, violence against indigenous women or mental health. Like for that kind of show to entertain that kind of interpretation, I thought was very weird.
0: That wraps up the episode. Teddy, we're going to take a quick little break and we'll be right back talking about what worked, what didn't work, and the overall reception of the show. We'll be right back. Okay, we're back talking True Detective season four, Night Country. We just broke down... The specifics of the finale teddy i want to ask you what if anything worked
1: in this episode i mean i think i will say that for all its faults and i think because of its faults the episode does i think wrap up most of the questions we had it does like a fair job of tying up loose ends and that's because they throw a lot at us in this final episode but at least it doesn't leave us with many questions to ponder what about you
0: that's true I appreciated the use of Salal as a setting because I was kind of waiting for that all season after it's introduced in the first episode. It's so intriguing. We really get away from it forever. And here, though, there are some pacing issues with these scenes. I kind of liked the idea of a chamber piece for a third of the episode at the Salal station. So I was satisfied the episode utilized the locale. Like I said, ending with the cleaners, I liked that explanation. I think even if the logic jump was too much and the you know punk scene was too funny, it's a good answer to the mystery. I thought the epilogue was strong. I just maybe was happy for some literal and metaphoric daylight for the characters because they've been through a lot this season. And then, you know, I kind of at a certain point came around to Navarro and Danvers and Feeling like they found some type of chemistry and connection. It took a while, but you know, this mismatched combo did work for me in the end. I will admit that.
1: You mean when they're not talking and peacefully staring away from the the camera? Yes. I like the two of them together.
0: Maybe that's when, for the fanfic section, Dan Varro can really take off.
1: He's shipping them.
0: I don't know. They look very cozy and cuddly out on that lake.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it does look like their uh, summer house or something.
0: We already talked so much about what didn't work, but do you have any, you know, highlight points for what failed in this
1: episode? I think looking back at everything, my problem with the show is that, you know, they have the beats of what could be a good show, right? Like interesting plot points, but there's no. In my opinion, dramatic tissue really connecting them. It almost feels like, like when you recount a show, like if I were to tell you, okay, this is what happened in True Detective season one, and I kind of listed out this happens and then this happens, and then, you know, they kill this person, there would be something missing, right? Like if I were like, oh, Marty or not Marty, Russ goes undercover with some drug addicts or drug dealers, and then they like raid a house and he gets rescued, that would convey what happened in that awesome scene but like that wouldn't really communicate to you how awesome that scene was or what happened in that scene but i feel like this show you actually do communicate everything that pretty much needs to be communicated by just recounting the beats and i think that goes to show like there's just not a lot of drama work being done in connecting plot points in connecting changes in character behavior or motivations it's just severely underwritten
0: I can't argue with you there. That's a good point. For me, I discussed the flashbacks when you have so many and so many different timelines. They just sag under the weight of each other. I discussed the logic jump. I thought that was a little annoying. And, you know, I was kind of joking about Annie K. the Kraken, but why not? Like, go hog wild. Get really crazy. I think that this Aired on the side of realism when it had an opportunity to really go bananas. And I mean, for such a boring show at times, I needed a little more jolt of something. Teddy, what is the online reception of this show? And then I'll talk a little bit about the critical reception of the show and the finale itself. I'm not covering the critics.
1: It seems to me like the overall reception of the show is pretty negative, at least On the subreddit, people seem to be pretty disappointed. But on the other hand, what is this season has like, what, 12 million viewers? Like, it's doing very well.
0: And it's a very, maybe we're wrong. Maybe the subreddit, I think the subreddit, though hysterical with its memes, also is a flat circle, you may say, of toxically negative feeling for this show. So if that's your only bubble of reception, sure, you could be poisoned against it. But we have our eyes and we saw the show as well. The critics, though, I'm just flabbergasted. I think the winner of the season is HBO. And whatever dark magic they've done to get every hardline, impressive, discerning critic to just go goo-goo bananas adoration for this show. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Rolling Stone, Alan Sepinwall, Amazing vulture five stars there's just that guy at forbes who looks like a crazy dude (laughs) screaming about how much he hates it because everyone else seems to love it
1: it's just he's the true detective
0: (laughs) it's just wild to me i did not really like this season of tv what what would you give it as a letter grade
1: as a number grade out of five i think i would give it one and a half maybe as a letter grade i think i would give it like c minus probably
0: I would give it plus.
1: C+. C+, plus. a general woman's C.
0: You know that meme of the, the beautiful drawing of the horse that gets progressively worse as the body keeps going? That's how I felt about this show. Really liked the premiere, enjoyed the second episode. And you know, the, the wheels just came off episode by episode. And even though the finale answered the questions and was a fine finale in itself, the foundation it was built upon couldn't hold for me.
1: Don't you feel, I mean, I think I read someone say this, but don't you think they could have cut out episode three, four, and five, or maybe just like condense them all? And you really wouldn't have lost that much.
0: Brother, I don't even know what happened in those episodes anymore.
1: It's lost to the night country, yeah.
0: What's your big picture takeaway or sentiment about Trudy season four? And how might that relate to your appetite for wanting more true detective?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think much like Andy Cow Talk, this season feels like something that was reanimated that should have stayed dead. And instead it's come back to life and is haunting all of us. I think this season was very bad. And even if it didn't have the true detective name, and I've seen some speculation about whether this was an original idea that was kind of shoehorned into the true detective family, I still think it would have been bad. And so my view is that they should not do more seasons of true detective if they are like this. If they kind of go back to the style of show that we saw in seasons one through three, then I'm happy to see more. And I'm I'm happy also to just see new new offshoots, new directions, but my God, like the one thing I associate with true detective is quality. And I think they just they really ruined the brand with this one. If you could pinpoint the biggest mistake, what was it? Maybe it's just not hiring the right people. The writing is really bad in two different ways, right? Like the way the story is laid out, structured and paced does not work for me, does not make for an entertaining or sensical story. And then on the more micro level, the dialogue to me just sounds really bad. And I feel like I need one of those. I need either like a well-structured story where the characters can be corny, but you know I'm moving along. Or if it feels like the story is going nowhere, but I just enjoy hearing these people talk, No, that's pleasant too. But when you don't have either, it's really tough for me to stay involved in the show and stay engaged. And, you know, like watching this last episode, I think in the conversation between Danvers and Navarro on the ice when they're having that argument, it just, it felt so poorly written. I mean, she has that line, I don't know if this bumped you, but where she says, I am not merciful. It felt like someone who, I don't know, just didn't have an ear for their dialogue at all. That's just like a very small example of something I felt throughout the larger show, that nobody talks this way.
0: Yeah, I think my biggest issue, and it kind of just was baked in from the jump, was by being a continuation of the True Detective franchise, the push-pull between how much of the lore and true detectiveness to include and that infiltrating, just telling a good story, you could always see the seams you could almost hear the conversations in the writer's room as they decide what Easter egg to drop or not drop. It's distracting. It didn't work. And maybe the whole thing was a fool's errand because of that. People, critics seem to love this show. I'm curious how it continues to be received. I look forward to future conversations with other people that have seen it, whether they like it or not on this podcast. We've discussed aspects that we liked of it, and we've certainly discussed others that we did not. We'll see, but I'm with you mostly. Teddy, Kim, any parting thoughts at all as we close the case on True Detective Season 4 Night Country?
1: There's a random thought I had at the end of this season where Danvers goes to Navarro's place and is kind of like, Navarro, Navarro, where are you? And it just really reminded me in a very random way of, of Goodwill Hunting. It's just the way that Navarro pieced out. And it just imagined her saying to Danvers, I got to go see about a ghost. Hopefully she's found her ethereal mini driver or whatever. It's what you want
0: to be thinking
1: as a show wraps up. But I don't know. I mean, clearly inspired by Goodwill Hunting, right? Yeah. Your head was in different places. I mean, the janitors, you know, and everything. But uh, no, I think maybe one thing we can end with is, you know, constructive, something positive. And maybe you and I can recommend some things where if you did like the season or or didn't so much, a couple other things to explore that kind of are similar to this, but maybe a little better. Yeah, I mean, I think we've talked about this a couple times, but Wind River by Taylor Sheridan. Some people don't like that movie. I think you probably do. I like it, but it covers a lot of the same subject material, takes place on a native reservation in Wyoming, and there's a missing dead person in an investigation. And and then that's a much more thrilling movie, and I think more tightly executed. What about you?
0: Yeah. Additionally, I'll add John Carpenter's The Thing, I'd add The Shining.
1: I would add True Detective season one. Yeah. Or, you know, if you're going back to episode one, if you want to read a book, read Blood Meridian. you probably have a much better time than watching uh, rewatching this season.
0: Oh, man, good inspirations, misguided season of TV. Teddy Kim, thank you very much. The most fun I had were these conversations. Definitely wasn't having that entertainment value from the show itself. So I really appreciate you for sticking with this. We seem to be taking crazy pills because everyone else likes this show, but we got to be honest to ourselves. Thank you very much for joining me to discuss True Detective Night Country all season And I'll see you around. Thanks, Mir. All right. I want to thank Teddy Kim once again for talking True Detective with me all season. I know we didn't necessarily love the show, but I did love all of these conversations. They were hysterical, fun, illuminating. I hope the listeners felt similarly. Next up, we are switching gears, heading to a different part of the world we are headed to France, and I have my French dispatch here, Elvire Audi. She comes on to discuss two new works that have graced the screens, both big and small, last week. Those being the romantic cooking film, The Taste of Things, starring Juliette Binoche and Benoit Mejamel, as well as the new Apple TV show, The New Look. That show is a period drama talking about the professional rivalry of Christian Dior, played by Ben Mendelsohn, and Coco Chanel, played by Juliette Binoche here again. We break down this movie and show respectively, discuss their merits and demerits, and whether they are accurate representations of France and the French spirit. It's a great conversation you do not want to miss, and that's coming up next. All right. Welcome back to the SchmearCast. I brought in a special guest for a special French edition of the SchmearCast, a check in on one of the most culturally beautiful countries that's responsible for great art, film, TV. We have a film and a show to discuss this week. And who better to have on than Elvire Audi? She is a producer. She's a writer of the incredible movies my dad told me to watch, Substack and I'm thrilled to have her on. Elvira, how are you? And welcome to the SchmearCast.
2: Thanks for having me, I'm great.
0: So a film came out this past week over Valentine's Day, The Taste of Things, and critics are loving it. It was France's selection for best international feature for this year's Oscars. It did not make the cut. We're going to get into all of that. But I wanted to know if you saw this movie, if you enjoyed this movie. I certainly did and I'm um, excited to talk about it today.
2: I did see the film. I saw it a couple of days ago in the theaters and it was an interesting experience because I saw it at Alamo Drafthouse where everybody was eating and I was watching this movie about food and it made me very hungry. But overall, it's a delicate film. It's really visually pleasing. Did I enjoy it? I'm not sure.
0: Fair enough. Let's get into all of it. So this comes from Vietnamese French film director Tran Anh Hong, who most famously did The Scent of Green Papaya back in 1993. Doesn't make that many films. And so I wasn't familiar with him before The Taste of Things. But after seeing the film, I've come to understand that, you know, he's kind of an auteur in his own right, taking his time with his films. If he's coming out with one, it's a big deal. So, what is the taste of things it's set in 1880s france it's the romantic story of eugenie played by juliette binoche she's an esteemed cook in the kitchen of famed chef doden and he is a fine gourmet they've been working together for 20 years and after being great work partners they are potentially transitioning into becoming romantic partners now i don't want to give too much away but Alvira, would you also agree there's not that much plot to give away too?
2: Uncommon in, you know, European auteur cinema and it is very atmospheric and I think that's definitely one of the strongest points of the film. But in terms of story, I think that, you know, it left a lot to be desired.
0: I think that it wasn't such a big deal for me. and. A lot of that speaks to how the tone and mood is set with the first scene it's an extended 35 minute insanely beautiful i don't know if it's one take but it's definitely one scene of a meal being prepared and i think for me where the taste of things starts and ends is the food and the food scenes are just stunningly beautiful pierre Gagnier, who's a three-star michelin chef and a legend was the culinary director for this film, and it really shows. It does not show that so much work is behind it. It feels very natural, but I've never seen such beautiful cooking on film. And my audience, I don't know about yours, was audibly ooing and eyeing. And I must admit, I may have been too. Did you have a similar reaction or no?
2: I think, yes, for sure. I was very impressed with all of the cooking scenes. I think that they're incredibly shot, incredibly realized and directed. And I think that it played a big part in Hong winning the best direction at the Cannes Film Festival. I think that the way that he handled his camera in the kitchen is something that I had never seen before on, on film. And it made me want to eat everything and i think the the theater that i was in also the audience was salivating at the site and
0: to add to that i think the sound design was fantastic and here i'll shout out jules betier you know you can hear everything the caviar being spooned the tinkling chandelier the pores of wine the razor sharp knife slices I don't know if Tran An Hung is familiar with the ASMR movement that has captured young people in the past few years, but whether he is or not, certainly you feel it. You're not just seeing and sensing the food, you're taking it all in, in almost an extra sensory experience that I haven't seen before. I have seen it actually, and I want to reference a show here because. You know, one of the most popular TV shows in the U S is the bear. And I think that series while excellent, gives people a certain sense of what cooking is, but I don't know if that's true. And this certainly dispels the idea that cooking is chaotic and that every moment needs to be a 10 alarm fire. Taste of things shares the fact that cooking is about time and love and not expediency. And I was wondering if you got a similar impression, if you like The Bear, and if you're happy to see a different portrayal of cooking.
2: I love The Bear. I think it's an incredible show. And, but I definitely agree with you in the sense that cooking is about time. And I think that the film does a really great job at respecting what it takes to deliver incredible, delicious meals. And, It showcases also where it comes from, which I think might not be as explicit in the bear. It comes from a place of love. It comes from passion. It comes from the will to share something that you've made with your hands from the earth, from nature around you, and giving it to the person that you love. And I think that's something that was really powerful in the Taste of Things that I personally really connected with as well. And I think that it resonates with a lot of people.
0: Yeah, I 100% agree. I would say come for the food, but stay for how it's used as a love language of sorts. Certainly, I personally connect to that. I love to cook. It should be expressive and languid. And if you love to cook for your partner or be cooked for, I think you will relate to this film and enjoy it. But, you know, back to the plot It really doesn't have much of one. And I definitely think if gastronomy doesn't move you, I don't think this movie is for you because it is long. It is really so centrally focused on that. But I will say the lack of plot didn't bother me too much. I was so swept up and transported in this, but tell me more about what you may have not liked about the taste of things.
2: Well, you mentioned sound, actually, and praised it, which I will agree with you to an extent. I do think that they actually went a step too far, especially in the way that we hear Benoit Magimel's, every sound that he makes, every humming or grunt or thought that he has that is physical is heard. And that made me actually very uncomfortable. And I thought that It felt too much and it was just something that I don't notice in other films and I was very conscious of in this one. And I think that, you know, obviously the act of eating and the act of cooking are physical, you know, expressions and we definitely heard them. And I think that was something that I couldn't not hear. And I think that it took me out of it a little bit. And then I also think that the film is extremely long. It could have lost about, I think, 15 minutes. And I think that we get lost a little bit in the poetry of it all. And while that's really touching and moving and can be beautiful, I think that it always needs to have a little bit of a deeper meaning. And I think that I missed the point. Sure, it reflects something that is truly French, which is l'art de vivre and the act, the art of living, and what it means to be what we call un bon vivant, or a nice living being. And I think that's really well represented on screen.
0: This is not a political film.
2: But it doesn't have to be.
0: No, it doesn't. But I think the French like a little edge in things, right? Definitely. I mean, you can see the other big French film of the year that traveled. We'll get to that in a little bit. Before we get there, what do you think of Benoit Magimel and Juliette Binoche as the stars here?
2: Listen, I think that Juliette Binoche, as always, has done a beautiful, wonderful job. She's exquisite, and she knows exactly what she's doing, and she does it with grace, and I think that that really comes across. Benoit Magimel, I think I was a little less convinced by him in the role. I think that the tone that he took when he speaks older French wasn't as believable to me as the other characters in the film. I think that he sounded like he recited a lot of his lines without feeling them as much. And sometimes it felt a little bit like reading from a book, from a history book. And that didn't sit right with me. And I think that there was a missed opportunity there. Obviously they have a lot of chemistry. They do have history together.
0: Yeah. What is their history for the listeners?
2: Well, they met on a film 20 years ago and fell in love and had a child together. I don't think they got married, but I'm not sure. And they broke up after some time and didn't really speak for 20 years, which is a really interesting parallel to the film where they portray a couple that's been with each other without really being with each other for 20 years. So I think that there's a nice meta quality to that. But a lot of people don't know that and don't necessarily have the tools to appreciate it because they're not aware.
0: Yeah, hopefully we're we're bringing that factoid to the listeners. And so if they haven't seen a taste of things, maybe they can feel it. I certainly didn't know that when I saw the film. But when you read that and you think about it, and you're kind of blown away by it first, you you do maybe sense that, wow, they are connecting on a deeper level that An actor meeting an actor for the first time for a new movie maybe can't, but how much of that is being informed by hearing this fact or how much of it is real, we'll never know. But that's a little bit of the magic of casting and romance, I guess. How's this film being received in France? I know this was selected as France's pick for best international feature for this year's Oscars. There's a massive movie that was not selected. We're about to talk about it. But how is A Taste of Things being received back in your homeland?
2: I haven't read that many reviews, but I've heard that people weren't as taken with it. There were two other films this year that came out in France that were very well received by the critics and the public. The first one being Anatomy of a Fall by Justine Trier, and the second one being Le Règne Animal, The Animal Kingdom by Thomas Caillet. And I think that those films really resonated with French culture. And I think that the Taste of Things, which in French is called La Passion de Daudin Bouffon, wasn't as relevant in today's political climate and today's, you know, societal reality than the two others. And I think that the French critics and the French public saw the Taste of Things as a very pleasant film that overall didn't lend as the others did.
0: In today's contemporary fraught society.
2: Yes, especially Anatomy of a Fall, which resonated so much with so many people across the world.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about it. I mean, Anatomy of a Fall right now from NEON is nominated for five Academy Awards for Best Picture, Best Director for Justine Trier, Best Actress for Sandra Huller, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Editing. I'm not sure Taste of Things picked up any nominations. So the Taste of Things, like you said, was selected by France, specifically by the National Cinema Center, which is a committee which is combined of artists and producers. And this was a big upset even at the time because Anatomy of a Fall won the Palme d'Or at Cannes. So. There is some potential conspiracy as to why this happened, this massive upset. I don't know if you looked this up, but, yeah, coming out of Cannes, you'd think the Palme d'Or winner would be selected, obviously, wrong. And why? You know, at the festival, Justine Trier slammed the French government about pension reform, and she was pretty fiery. She said, quote, France was rocked by an unprecedented protest movement that was extremely powerful and unanimous against the pensions reform okay that doesn't sound so crazy she went on to say protest was denied and suppressed in a shocking manner and this pattern of increasingly uninhibited dominating power is in film community too okay we're getting a little more dicey and she blamed then quote the neoliberal government for the commodification of culture And this was received with a mix of cheers and boos. And I know that France's culture minister was pissed off. And so she was definitely ruffling some feathers. Is that how you remember this going down?
2: Yes. However, is this a political decision? I can't speak to that. And I think that actually there's something else that is at play, which is that Anatomy of a Fall was picked up By Neon, out of the Cannes Film Festival, and was going to give it a U.S. release, which means that it would qualify for the Oscars. And I think that that actually plays a huge part in it, which I don't think was part of the decision of the discussion in France that much of the in part of the controversy. And I think that because the film was getting a theatrical release already in the U.S., it didn't need to be representing France and i think that is maybe one of the dis- one of the factors why that decision was made in terms of maybe giving another film a chance it doesn't work at the end of the day because when you already have a french film that is garnering a lot of attention and getting all of these awards are they going to pay attention to another french film it feels like you're pitting one against the other and that doesn't come out that well but I do think that you know we have to look at what comes out of these, you know, distribution strategies and how that affects those other decisions.
0: And I would say knowing Neon and how savvy they are, they're happy to play up this point that they are jilted by France because it kind of helps with the conversation around anatomy of a fall.
2: Yeah. And Neon has picked up the last three Palme d'or. In recent years, and they're really, you know, they have incredible flair and they did a wonderful job with the US release as well.
0: Before we turn our attention to France on television, just want to ask you which between Taste of Things and Anatomy of a Fall captures the French spirit better, and what is the better movie to you?
2: I think my answer for both of these questions is going to be Anatomy of a Fall. I think that Anatomy d'une Chute is. A very complex and reflective film. And I think that it asks a lot of questions that are there for the audience to answer for themselves. And I think that's something that is inherently French. It also depicts the French judiciary system in great detail. And I have a lot of American friends who have seen this film, were very surprised by how France Conducts their trials and how different that was from the US legal system. So that's also something that is worth noting. It also depicts the fall of a couple, which, you know, we know a lot about in France. And it has very modern views on what consists of a modern couple in terms of whose responsibility it is to care for a child to be this successful, in quotes, partner of the two? And are you responsible for your partner's insecurities, failures, successes, and vice versa? And I think that those are questions that resonate with a lot of people and are inherently, I don't want to say just deep, because <laughs> they are. And that's not what makes them French. But In a way, they do. (laughs) I think it's a better movie because it makes you think and because it encourages discussion and dialogue and contradiction. And I think that there's not a black and white answer. Everything's in the gray. And that's what life is. And I think that it's a very subtle and wordy film, but there's great beauty in things being complicated and in things being not the way that they seem.
0: Well, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I too love Anatomy of a Fall and it's very important to think in movies, but it's also important to feel. And so I would also recommend a taste of things. I am a lover, not a fighter, and maybe I'm a simpleton American, but I love a little love on screen as well. So I would really recommend both of these movies, but I hear you completely, and maybe I would give a slight edge to Anatomy of a Fall as well, but I think it's funny to pit these films against each other. It's good for narrative and conversation, but I think both films are excellent out of France this year.
2: They both have you know great things to praise, and while I prefer one over the other, they both have great qualities to praise and to, to each their own, is what I mean. They're such different films and they, one will pull on your heartstrings and the other will stay in your brain forever.
0: Maybe we have a little less praise as we turn our attention towards television and Paris on screen on the small screen. We're gonna take a little break and come right back. We're gonna talk about the Apple TV show, The New Look. We're back. I'm here with Elvire Audi, our resident Frenchie, and we just talked about two great films, Anatomy of a Fall and The Taste of Things. We're going to turn our attention to TV, talk about the new Apple TV show, The New Look. So this dropped also on Valentine's Day. It's coming out weekly after dropping three episodes on that date. It is a historical drama set in the world of haute couture in the first half of the 20th century comes from Todd Kessler who was a writer director on Bloodline and Damages and here he's telling the story of rival Haute couturiers Coco Chanel and Christian Dior two of the greatest designers of their era but two people who were profoundly affected by World War II Chanel's nephew was captured by the Nazis Christian Dior's sister, Catherine, was a resistance fighter that was also captured by the Nazis, tortured and imprisoned in a concentration camp. Elvire, I turn to you. I'm not denying how miraculous and incredible this true story is, and the facts are the facts. This is wild how intense and profound this time period was for these designers. But I'm just here to tell you that narratively, This is coming out really boring and flat to me. I come to this show to see camp and beauty and over-the-topness and costumes and a little bit of silliness even. I'm expecting this exciting rivalry. I came for Phantom Thread, Paul Thomas Anderson's 2017 gorgeous, crazy psychodrama about the world of haute couture, and instead I got all the light we cannot see. And I gotta tell you, I'm so disappointed really by that focus and choice for a show like this that could have so much potential. What did you think of the first few episodes of the new Apple TV show, The New Look?
2: I completely agree with you. I think that I was also extremely surprised and disappointed by this direction. I think that the choice to solely focus, at least in the first three episodes, or all that I, I've seen so far, or all that are out solely on, you know, their involvement in World War II and their tragic stories. And I'll agree with you, the facts are the facts. And it's actually very interesting to discover this part of their lives, which I wasn't aware of. But for me, that is not who they were. And I think that the show misses by not talking about their work. And I think that it might come in later episodes, but to have already three episodes focusing on this espionage thriller, very dry drama that has little to no humor at all, is filled with dubious creative choices on top of that, I think is a real missed opportunity. And I. Don't know if I want to continue watching it.
0: Me either. Through three episodes, like you said, our two leads, Christian Dior played by Ben Mendelsohn and Coco Chanel played again by Juliette Binoche. We love both these actors, but they scantily interact with each other at all, which is a bummer. You want to see these massive figures smashing together, getting a little petty with each other, getting competitive with each other. We have none of that. What were some of the other creative choices that you were kind of bemoaning?
2: Well, I will first talk about how shaky the camera is and how disorienting that is. I don't think that the show looks beautiful, which is quite ironic given the subject. It's very great. The color grade is actually also quite strange and is a choice. It has a sepia almost you quality to it, which I understand is supposed to reference a flashback, but I think that's a very simplistic and kind of dated way of telling a story. And overall, I'm honestly kind of disappointed by the fact that only one of these actors is French. <laughs> I mean, I love Ben Mendelssohn. he's great.
0: It's a show in English with everyone doing French accents of English speaking.
2: Yes. And I think that cannot truly represent what haute couture is, what Christian Dior and Coco Chanel represented for France and for French fashion and for fashion around the world. And I think that actually it took me out a lot of the show because sometimes these conversations actually happen in English because they travel and you don't know when they're supposed to speak French, when they're supposed to speak English when they're supposed to speak German. And I think that's really problematic. And we live in a world today when you can mix multiple languages into a film, into a show, add subtitles. We live in a global society. And I think that's something that should have been done here.
0: I think that's a great point. It took me out of it too. I'm not even French. Something else that took me out of it is Catherine Dior and Christian Dior had a 12 year age gap, these siblings in the show. The actors, Ben Mendelssohn and Maisie Williams from Game of Thrones, have a 28-year age difference. I literally did not believe they were siblings until they told me for the fifth time, because I just couldn't fathom that a 28-year-old difference would make siblings. So that was really annoying to me. And on a macro scale, you know, like I said, I've seen a million Nazi movies and shows. I love them. It's fine. I, it's, a, it's good content. But I have not seen a Dior for Chanel Haute Couture Battle Royale. And that's what I was looking for here. And that's what I'm not getting at all. So let me ask you, do you recommend this show? It sounds like you may not.
2: I do not, though. I will say, like, there's a part of me that is curious to see where it's where they're taking it and if we're going to see more of the fashion in the later episodes. But. The one thing that I also forgot to mention that really irked me is that the show starts with some title cards and some little historical references and knowledge that we should know before watching it. And then it goes on to say, this is the story of how creation brought back life to the world. And I was like, you don't need to write that down. Just let it play. This, If your message is clear, we will feel it. You don't need to tell us. This is the story of how one designer brought hope back into the world. And I thought that was really almost a diss to the audience in terms of, are we not smart enough to figure that out by ourselves? You have to spell it out.
0: I think it was a diss. No, but you know, for more luxurious fashion on TV right now, I would point viewers to Capote vs. The Swans on FX, and that's the newest iteration of the Feud series. It has flaws, for sure. I'm not saying it's a perfect show. But watching that and watching this, it's night and day. That show, Feud, is so much more fun. The scripts are buoyant and fizzy. The cast is having a ton of fun. I don't know why the new look came out so serious. I think it's a huge miss for entertainment value. That's just my last thoughts on it. All right, let's wrap things up. But before we go, Elvire, I want to ask you, any French shows or movies on the horizon that maybe listeners can keep an eye out for that you're excited about?
2: Yeah, I have a few, actually. I think that one that I'm really excited about is Bolero by Anne Fontaine. This is the story of Maurice Ravel, the 20th century film composer. Yes. That guy? Yeah. The, no, the guy who wrote Bolero and I'm really excited to see it. I love classical music myself, and I think, that, I think that it's going to be a beautiful story. Another music film that's coming out is going to be Monsieur Aznavour, about Charles Aznavour. That's going to be with Tahar Rahim, who's who you might know from A Prophet, or The Serpent, which was a show on Netflix.
0: Or Madame Web. Hopefully you don't know him from there.
2: Not seen that. <laughs> but he's a great actor, and I hope that they do Charles Neville justice. And in terms of shows, speaking of fashion, there's gonna be a show on Karl Lagerfeld on uh, Disney Plus called Kaiser Karl. Daniel Bruhl plays Karl Lagerfeld. I have a friend who worked on the show. So I'm really curious to see how that's gonna be different from the new look.
0: Great, those sound awesome. Thank you very much, Elvira. Thank you. And like I said, check out her Substack, movies. My dad told me to watch. I read it every week and love it. And I really appreciate bringing an international voice onto the show. I hope listeners enjoyed this added new perspective. Elvira, thank you for coming to the ShmierCast.
2: Thank you so much. Hope you have me again.
0: All right. We will be right back. All right, listeners, it's Schmear. Sorry to interject, but I wanted to add a postscript to this conversation with Elvire. the day today is Wednesday, February 21st, two days ago, Julia Pinoche gave an interview to New York Times, which we didn't read when we recorded our podcast, but I think is super illuminating and touches on some of the topics we were discussing when talking about the taste of things. So I just wanted to share two quotes in regards to the controversy in France about the decision to submit the taste of things for Oscar. For best international feature instead of Anatomy of a Fall, Juliette Binoche said, quote, first of all, we didn't choose to be selected. And after not being nominated, Le Monde, which is a French major newspaper publication, doubled down on our movie. It was a really mean take saying that the movie was conventional and old fashioned, that it was only about food. She went on to say some actors, famous ones at that, even liked that article on Instagram. I thought, wow, really? It was tough for Hung, the director of the film, who makes a movie every four or five years. I thought it was really harsh. So there you go. That's uh, from the horse's mouth. Juliette Binoche's own thoughts about a taste of things being selected for best international feature instead of Anatomy of a Fall. Here's one more quote she gave when asked, Was it troubling to reunite with her ex-lover Benoit Magimel?" And here Binoche said, Quote, no, 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 not at all. It was liberating for me. It created movement into expressions, into saying, into feeling, into being in each other's presence. She went on to add, the blockages were gone, and it felt freeing for me. We haven't spoken really since the movie, so I don't know about him, and that's fine with me. I think we should all make films with every single boyfriend we've separated from. So say what you want about Juliette Binoche, but she is a firecracker and gives great quotes and is a pretty fantastic actress too. All right. That was me and my interjection. We're back. That wraps up our show for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We will definitely be back next week. I'll certainly be covering Berlinale and ranking some of the films that I got to see there. Maybe we'll talk a little Avatar The Last Airbender, the new adaptation, graces Netflix tomorrow, all 10 episodes dropping. Not sure how that's going to turn out. It does not look very good, but I'm happy to be surprised as always. And maybe we'll be talking about The Dynasty. This is the new Apple TV docuseries about the New England Patriots. It's not necessarily breaking any new ground as far as sports documentaries, but it's so much fun to watch. I absolutely love to hate the Patriots. So I'm having a great time watching this series. Maybe we'll talk about that in the state of documentaries right now in 2024. I want to thank my producer, Pablo Melnick, for mixing a great episode as always. Shout out to Justin Friedman for the original music. That's it for the episode. I will see all you folks back here next week. Schmeer out.